Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets Up listeners, and also some new listeners here because, yes, we have some big news. We're starting it off real quick here. I think James is going to play some air horns here in the background, but big news for the boys. We've been picked up. We've got a big, a big partnership here. We are now going to be presented by The Seven Line. Yes, the Mets Up podcast and The Seven Line has partnered up to give you a Mets podcast through the seven line as well. Nothing's going to change on our side, guys. Nothing's going to change. You're still going to get the great content that you see all year long after every single series, but we are also just partnering up with the seven line. So for those of you who are new here, just a quick little intro. My name's Mark Luino, Giraffe Neck Mark on Twitter, big Mets fan, YouTube guy, one of the co-hosts of the show, and we also have James Shiano. Jeter had no range. I mean, I'll let him talk for himself here. Yeah, thanks, Mark. James, James Shiano, Jeter had no range on Twitter, been writing for a few years, pitcher lists. And doing this podcast with Mark, we're having a great time doing it. Yeah, and we're going to have a great episode for you guys here. The first one, like I said, presented by The Seven Line. Super excited about that. Gone to games, hung out at games, known Darren for a few years, wear their merch all the time. Like, it's really cool that we get to partner up with one of the bigger Mets communities and also have a nice little bit of synergy here with this Mets Sub Podcast. So this episode, we're going to do a little bit of a season preview. We're going to talk about the DeGrom injury, some of the trades that did and did not go down. And we're also going to answer some viewer questions as well as talk about some of our favorite Mets bets that you guys should be making before the season starts. So, of course, if you guys are new here or if you haven't yet done so, make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, at MetsUp. Just search us up. If you want to watch a video version of it, the YouTube channel is great. If you just want to listen, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find it. Make sure you're following, subscribed, dropping a rating, dropping a review. It really does help us out. And I think that's the perfect way to intro us here. So, let's just go ahead and get it started. Let's just... Started off with the bad news. Let's rip the Band-Aid off. Jacob deGrom is out, and it's devastating. It is really devastating. It's almost like we teased it or felt something like this was going to come in the last few episodes we were talking about deGrom, especially coming off the high of our last episode about last Sunday after the Scherzer-DeGrom piggyback outing. It was almost too good to be true, and we, I don't, we didn't know it. We didn't want to know it, but we just knew that this was always very possible. This was always a reality that was going to possibly rear its ugly head and the fact that it has and it just happened so instantly like oh shoulder soreness oh mri oh out for at least four weeks and it's just it's wash rinse repeat it's really disappointing that we have to head into the season with this dark cloud yeah it sucks that opening day in washington although it's probably gonna be delayed but it's not gonna be headlined by jacob de like you said stress reaction in right scapula that is the bone behind the shoulder i think that's that's the chicken bone isn't it isn't that your scapula good question 
Good question. We're not we're not doctors here. We are Mets fans, as you guys could probably figure it out. But it's just it's it's devastating. There's no way to sugarcoat it because at the absolute minimum, we have Jacob Degrom out for a month. That's like I think the minimum prognosis. But no, it's the minimum the minimum prognosis. He's not throwing for four weeks, and he's going to reevaluate that. So even if you don't throw for four weeks, having gone through like two thirds of his spring training ramp up, Jacob Degrom, at best, you see him June first. That's the best case scenario. Is two months. That's a significant amount of time. That's what, like six, or not six, six to ten starts, basically, of Jacob deGrom that we're going to be missing out on. And for a Mets team that is looking to be one of the best teams in baseball, is looking to win the National League East, that's definitely going to hurt us a little bit. Uh, I know we got Max Scherz this offseason and we brought in Chris Bassett, but when you lose a guy like deGrom, I mean, we saw it last year, it is, it's a killer to this team at times. It's a massive blow to the Mets team talent-wise. Like, we were projected to be a 90-win team on all the, like, the sports books in Vegas. That number is now off the board. We talked a couple weeks ago about the first MLB.com power rankings. I think we were four, right? I think we we're in the top five. Yeah, we came out at 12th on the ones that came out this morning, which that's a massive, massive drop as well. It's just he's such a good baseball player, and he's so monumentally important to the success of this team. And more than the success of this team, he's so monumentally important to, I think, the feel and like the drive of this team because everyone knows how good he is and how special he is. And you saw the way the team responded last year when he went out. Just the, let the air... The air was a lot of the sales. And it's going to be different now that Max Scherzer is going to be there to shoulder a lot of this load, but there's just no way to sugarcoat how awful this is. Yeah, no, it's, it sucks. And like Scherzer pitching opening day sounded great, but now we also don't know if that's going to happen. Like that's in limbo too because of the whole hamstring issue. Like Scherzer's a gamer. I feel like there's no way he misses opening day if he can pitch. You know, he just doesn't seem like a guy who's like, ah, my, my hamstring's a little sore. I'm going to sit this one out, especially in Washington. I feel like he's got to be particularly amped up for that game. I agree with you in sentiment, but I also feel like the risk almost is not worth the reward. Like if Scherzer does push it and pitch with a bad hamstring and he winds up getting a pull and he has to miss four weeks too, like that would just be absolutely devastating. The whole season could be over by April 20th. Like you can't risk that. Now that DeGrom is going to be out for an extended period of time, Max Scherzer, you almost have to, and I hate this because it goes against everything that Max Scherzer is and should be and I want him to be, but you have to be extra careful with him because there's so much more now resting on his shoulders than there was a week ago. Especially with this DeGrom injury news. And I, I saw a lot of different things on Twitter, a lot of different comments, a lot of different opinions from people around the league about the injury, what this means for DeGrom moving forward. The one that really piqued my interest was from Brandon McCarthy, who basically this injury is named after. Uh, You guys might remember Brandon McCarthy pitched, I don't know, like 10 years ago-ish. That was kind of his prime, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. He's a pretty good pitcher, but he also wasn't Jacob DeGrom. And he said that it should be no big deal. He'll be fine. It's, It's nothing to worry about. And then the other side of things, you get a lot of people who are saying, you should be worried. This is this is not good for Jacob DeGrom. I don't know where I stand. I tend to believe Brandon McCarthy, uh, the guy who's dealt with it, but it's still terrifying. Yeah, Brandon McCarthy, I will tend to believe him because he is a pitcher who experienced this multiple times, but he also threw like 88 miles an hour. So like it's kind of hard to compare him to Jacob DeGrom, who's gassing 100 like with regularity. Whose slider is 93 <laughs> miles an hour and his changeup's 90. Yeah, like <laughs> Jacob DeGrom's his changeup's harder than Brandon McCarthy threw fastballs, but... You see the Twitter doctors, and there's no way to verify or any of these people. Like, maybe some of them are being truthful and earnest. Maybe some of them are just, like, fake MD in their Twitter handle. But there's just this idea that, like, DeGrom had an elbow issue last year, and now he has a shoulder issue. And the fact that one of those has possibly led into another one, you worry about the stability of his entire right side of his body, and it's it makes it a little scary. And it just, you just have to wait for these four weeks to go off April 27th, I think it will be, when, when DeGrom's due for his next MRI if he's not sore anymore, and then pray to God things are okay then, and that we can get healthy Jacob DeGrom back for two-thirds of the season, which would be better than last year. 
I wonder what this does for the team's like morale. Not that it's super, super important yeah, to the players' everyday that. thing. Probably not good. Yeah, I mean, like they have to be kind of, kind of, it's, like you said, it like lets the air out a little bit. Like if you're a player, I don't know if there's like a worry around the the locker room in the clubhouse, but there's definitely a little bit more of like, okay, maybe we're not as comfortable as we once were. There's definitely just a different vibe between having Jacob Degrom around and not having Jacob Degrom around. Like we kind of heard that a little bit in the Trevor May interview last month that you are aware that this is one of the best pitchers in all of baseball sitting next to you. And like just that being around, you're being around greatness will help you to be great in general. And the fact that he will not be there anymore, it just seems like there's no way to put an actual tangible number on what that impact will be. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely going to shake this team a lot. And we talked about this all off season long. And as we're basically in our last off season episode, before we go back to the twice a week during the week after every series, Next man up. This is why pitching depth was so important. This is why we hammered home the random names that you would pull out, the oatmeal that we wanted a part of this roster for so long because you knew it's not physically possible to just have a fully healthy pitching staff all year long. It's unfortunate that it has to be Jacob DeGrom that goes down, but at least the Mets have put themselves in better situations, it seems like, than maybe in years past to handle a guy like Jacob DeGrom being down. Now, of course, we talk Scherzer, the hamstring thing, but we did get Chris Bassett, too, who's going to be really good. He's going to be really solid. Yes, James doing the cross. (laughs) Thank God we have Chris Bassett. (laughs) Knock on some wood. Let's just whatever we can do to keep the mojo up, the the juju. I got the dog all excited. You think someone's knocking on the door right now. (laughs) But, (laughs) I mean, it's next guy up. And the fallout of this DeGrom injury is something that we have to talk about as well because this kind of does change the outlook of this rotation a bit. Rotation will look a lot different. I think the biggest single player whose who's, uh, this workload will fall on is Carlos Carrasco. Carlos Carrasco went from almost being house money for the Mets two weeks ago to being like, oh, I hope we get the good Carlos Carrasco back. That could be really helpful to this team to where now, if we don't get a competent Carlos Carrasco, this thing could spin out in a very bad way early. And he did just pitch on Monday right before we recorded this. He, of course, gave up the classic Carlos Carrasco first inning run. He gave one the second inning too. A lot of, not a lot of hard contact to the Astros, but... A lot of balls were finding holes. He was throwing strikes, but they were just getting hits. He played the Astros A-team, so you're not going to be perfect. But he settled in very nicely once he got to the third inning and actually retired the last eight Astros he faced. And again, this was the Astros A lineup. This was Kyle Tucker. This was Jose Altuve. This was Jordan Alvarez. This was Alex Bregman. This was Michael Brantley. So seeing Carlos Carrasco improve as the spring has gone on, another year out from uh, his uh, leukemia, another uh, another couple of weeks, months out from the bone spur removal from his elbow, another almost year out from pulling his hamstring. Like Carlos Carrasco is becoming vitally important to this team, and I'm happy to see that he is improving. And what do you go four and a third today? I think giving up two runs and striking out a couple. So yeah, like four and a third, four and two thirds. Yeah, if we can get five innings out of Carlos Carrasco the first couple of weeks of the season, that's that's really big for this rotation. Like we talked about. We're in this weird spot where we do have a lot of that depth of like those guys who could come in and take multiple innings. Like we talk about. Tyler McGill all the time was probably now just going to be in the rotation. But even a guy like David Peterson, who could probably throw multiple innings out of the pen, Trevor Williams could throw multiple innings out of the pen. Drew Smith could even probably throw a couple innings if we really want him to. So losing to Grom sucks because it's Jacob DeGrom. But I do think that unlike years past, the Mets are better suited to handle missing someone in their rotation. It just happens to be by far the best pitcher in baseball. Yeah, definitely. I'm happy you mentioned McGill because now he goes from being our secret weapon as we dubbed him a couple of weeks ago to now being our bona fide like four or five star there. He has to, has to, has to come in ready to rock. Taiwan, I think he is going to make that first turn through the rotation, right? They haven't really mentioned much about that. The hamstring is okay. Yeah. 
No, he seems to be pitching fine. Like, he pitched, I think, three innings yeah. the last time he went out there. So he's probably not going to go six or seven like we saw at times last year. But you might be able to sneak four or five out of him on the first th- way through, which that's fine. That's fine. Again, this is a long season. You're going to see this with teams all over Major League Baseball. You can't just come out firing to start the year. It's going to be impossible after the shortened season. It's going to be impossible after the lockout. It's just the players aren't ready to do that. So for Taiwan... Three, four innings the first couple starts. It's not going to be exciting. It's not going to be, oh, yeah, three, four innings. Woo-woo. But, like, that's a good start. Definitely. And um, one guy you haven't mentioned who I think will be important, who I think will now probably be on the opening day roster, Sean Rifoli. Sean Rifoli piggybacked on Carlos Carrasco today. He's a guy who we saw last year in April and May look very good. He had a very lively fastball. And curveball? Curveball? Changeup? What did Rifoli throw? He, he's a little all over the place. Like, nothing's too particularly elite where it's like you remember that pitch for sure but i think his fastball is a plus pitch i think it is something that can get major league hitters out consistently at least one or times through the order and he's someone who we're gonna have to rely on to probably give us something like eight innings a week early and then you mentioned david peterson his results this spring have not looked good but you know saris of the athletic the one of the greatest pitching minds that we have access to in the universe he uh he has a great metric called stuff plus which basically takes the movement and the, uh, basically all the physics of every single pitch that pitchers throw and turns into a nice, fancy, neat, and wonderful number. And last year, David Peterson was like pretty significantly below league average in terms of stuff. And now, this spring training, he has inched above league average in terms of stuff, especially because now his sinker has more drop and more run, rather than just being a sinker that moves a little bit, sinker that now moves a little bit more. And David Peterson, being a guy who can get major league hitters out two or three times through the order, would also be monumentally important to the Mets. Yeah, no, it would be really important. And again, like we talked about it at nauseum last year, during this offseason, you have to build a complete roster. You have to have, I think it's 28 to start the year, but you have to have one through 28 have a role, have some sort of importance. And it at least feels like in this Mets rotation, this Mets staff, that all these guys have a place, and I don't feel particularly bad about any of them. Like, I don't want David Peterson being my opening day starter. That would scare me. But David Peterson coming out of the bullpen and giving us a couple innings every few days or whatever it's going to be, that's a situation I can live with. Of course, I would much rather have Jacob DeGrom pitch every game and go seven or eight like he normally does, but that's not where we're at right now. So we have to find a way that this is going to work, and I don't think the Mets are as screwed as maybe a lot of people would like you to believe. No, I don't think they're screwed at all. As long as Jacob Trump doesn't miss the entire year. And not that that's impossible, but as long as he comes back, this team is not screwed. You almost have to think of it like a reverse of last year. Like if they can just keep their heads above water for two months without Jacob DeGrom, everything else works fine. And he can come back and give us like 15 lights out starts from July through the end of the year. You'll be in pretty good shape. You'll probably be a team that's competing for the National League East. And you'll probably be a team that if they get into the playoffs with a healthy Jacob DeGrom, Max Scherzer can still compete for a pennant and possibly World Series championship. Like, that's still within the Mets' range of outcomes for sure. But now it's about all hands on deck and kind of being creative and kind of letting these some of these pitchers step up in the first half because they will need to. And again, like you said before, if guys are throwing three and four innings, we have to accept that. Just get, 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 get their innings through, get to the rest of the bullpen, get to the next game with a win, hopefully. And I think it's also important to note, too, like you said about DeGrom, I like how you kind of spin-zoned it a little bit there. I'm going to spin-zone it again. We've been talking about it that DeGrom wasn't going to throw 200 innings this year. There was a 0% chance. So it's almost as if he gets to start his season a little bit later and we get him at the end of the season as opposed to at the beginning, which could be more valuable to us. Spin-zone, I'm spinning it hard. hard. We might get more valuable innings out of Jake DeGrom in September as opposed to April, which I can live with. The Mets are always good in April. I'm, I'm not worried about that. Definitely. Keep her head above water. Get this MRI, res- MRI results back. McGill steps up. Peterson's okay. Carlos Carrasco is at least 70% of his former self. And things are not doomsday like some people might think they are. 
And I think it's also important to note too, like you talked about this, the staff in this rotation. We also made a change in the rotation, or not rotation, a change in the pitching staff, and that Miguel Castro was shipped out. And it was one of the things that I think a lot of Met fans wanted going into the offseason was we need a new lefty because it's not going to be loop. We need that left-handed guy. And it sounds weird that trading Miguel Castro ended up being a good thing, but we traded him for Joely Rodriguez, one of the few times the Mets and Yankees have ever made trades. And I don't know as much Joely Rodriguez information as I probably should, but I know you do. You, you talked to me about it. You gave me the info. Go ahead and drop the knowledge for everybody why Joely's a nice pickup. Yeah, I got, I got a little bit of information on him. He went from the Rangers to the Yankees last year at the deadline, and then they uh, restructured his contract just so he could basically forego some arbitration years because he has enough service time to be a free agent, so he could be, be a real free agent to get a next year. So that's another thing about this Castro for Joely swap. Each guy had one year left of service time. And Joely is kind of that quintessential like sinker changeup reliever, kind of similar to the way Loop came to the Mets, where it's a guy who you're kind of expecting to pitch to contact. He had an ugly ERA last year; it was four six one. But once once he got to the Yankees, he kind of trimmed that down in the second half. And he, he is he is a reliever who is good and he's stable and he's steady. His stuff's not going to blow you away, but it's also not bad. And he's not really going to issue with many free passes like um like we saw Castro do. But then you give away a guy like Castro who throws 100 miles an hour with a wipeout slider. But this Mets bullpen got to a point with Adam Adovino, Andrew Smith, and Miguel Castro where you kind of had three right-handed pitchers who all did similar things in a way. And I think that's kind of how the Mets brass saw their bullpen. And I think they just got themselves a stable lefty, which they needed. Yeah, I, Chazen Shreve was currently our lefty in the bullpen right now. And as much as I like Chazen Shreve, he's actually looking really good in the spring. And he made, he made the team officially. Yeah, he made the team officially. He looked great with the Mets a couple years ago when he was our lefty as well. Like, I like Chazen Shreve, but he shouldn't be our main lefty to get out like Juan Soto and Bryce Harper by any means. That that makes me a little bit nervous at times, just because I know of how Chazen Shreve has been in the past. But he looks good, pairing him up with Joely, along with... The Mets have a really, really good bullpen. I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough, is that this bullpen's really strong. Like I, Top to bottom, it's one of the better ones in baseball, I think. The bullpen's completely lights out. The Mets are like six relievers deep right now, guys who can get a tough out, guys who have stuff. You'd be like, holy shit, that's really good stuff. And the fact that we still have this three-headed monster in the back of Diaz, Lugo, and May, no one's really talking about that. As again, like you said, one of the better back-end trios that exist in all of Major League Baseball. And Joely's going to be a good piece of it. He's not probably not going to wow anyone. You're not going to turn any heads. But he's going to get a lot of ground balls. He's going to get a lot of weak fly balls. And you're going to really appreciate this trade happening. Yeah, and then the other trade that was going around in Mets Twitter was the, oh my God, like the SpongeBob meme of everything is on fire when the Mets were rumored to be trading Dom Smith for not only just Eric Hosmer, but Chris Paddock, two notorious Mets villains, along with Emilio Pagan with the Padres. Craziness. I mean, like that that 12-hour stretch of when there was a real possibility that this trade was going to happen, Twitter was on fire. Yeah, this was a hilariously hot non-trade that included four players who were objectively like not great. And none who you can even like guarantee project to be great. I know Mets fans love Dom. We've been hot and cold on Dom in this show. He looks great in the spring. Had another home run today. OPS is over fourteen hundred. But I by the time this trade was like at its precipice, I've almost talked myself into it just because like Dom isn't gonna he's not guaranteed for reps in this team anyway. He has to hit his way into the job. Chris Paddock, while Mets fans hate his guts and he's looked really bad in the past, he still throws mid to upper nineties with a plus changeup and really good command. Emilio Pagan is is two years removed from being like one of the better relievers in all of baseball. And both of those guys come from a Padres team that is objectively moronic with pitching development at the minor league and the major league level. 
Yeah, they have Larry Rothschild, who just killed pitchers' careers out in the Bronx. So anytime that guy's around pitching, you should run the other way as fast as you can. Definitely. And then the Padres are going to pay most of Eric Hosmer's contract. So it's going to become a four-year, $25 million deal, which, I mean, I don't, I don't want Eric Hosmer in this team. But if Eric Hosmer's making $6 million a year, there's worse things in your backup first baseman making $6 million. I told you when I tweeted it, like, if this trade were to have gone down, the Mets fans would have had to just pretend Eric Hosmer was James Loney. If he's James Loney, a ground ball hitting defensive first, backup first baseman, this would have sounded fine. Okay, we got a young pitcher with promise. We got a reliever who's good, who's going to slide into the back of the bullpen, and we got James Loney to be backup first baseman. That's great work. But it wasn't. It was Eric Hosmer, and I hate his stupid fucking face, just like all you other Mets fans out there. But they, luckily, we don't have to deal with it. But I think with the thing that ended up breaking this trade down fully, and the reason that the Mets didn't make it, is because I don't know how much they thought Chris Paddock could have helped this rotation this year. And it seems like that was 24 hours outside of the DeGrom news. And they were they wanted to see if they can get a pitcher that day for, or even that weekend, just for a player on the roster. And doesn't it seems like Paddock didn't exactly quench that thirst. And then maybe they didn't have enough to get Sean Benaya from the Angels, who eventually went to the Padres. Or the A's, Scott, the A's. That whole news cycle was like the perfect storm of a player that's loved by Mets fans being Dom Smith, who's having a great spring. So everyone's really over the moon with how Dom Smith is playing. And we're excited too, like you said. He's looking really good. Playing Met DH, let's see it opening day. I'm down to have Dom get those at-bats. So you have that, and then you have the Mets villains of Chris Paddock, who we know the whole Pete Alonso scenario where he just randomly started a fight with Pete Alonso and then got absolutely destroyed the rest of the season. And, oh, Pete's really good and Chris Paddock stinks. Oh, no. Eric Hosmer, the World Series thing, he stinks. He's getting paid all the money in the world. And then Emilio Pagan, which I'm sure most people are like, oh, whatever, Emilio Pagan, who cares? Like, deep baseball fans know he's good. But at the end of the day, he was probably more of a throw-in in terms of the narrative that was going on. But... Like you said, if you if you thought of Eric Hosmer as just James Loney or even like Adrian Gonzalez, right? Fine. Like you probably it's probably fine. It was just a perfect storm of names, plus the overreaction of Jacob DeGrom being out, plus the Max Scherzer hamstring news. It was just like negative, 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 negative on Mets Twitter. So I'm glad that you were able to spin it positive because I was at the airport that day. I was traveling and I was ready to just not ever get on my next flight and just hang out in the airport for eternity. I was like, Oh my god, we're getting Eric Hosmer. This dude's so washed. Like, what are we doing? At the end of the day, it didn't happen, though, so it's really a non-issue. But I'm I'm okay with it not happening. Like, I'm happy to see what Dom's got this year. Yeah, I would have been okay with it happening and okay with it not happening. I think there is a chance that Dom Smith kind of figured something back out now that he's fully healthy, and he can be the leader in the clubhouse to be the Mets DH against right-handed pitchers, which is a massive, massive role in any baseball team. But there's just... I don't know. There was something weird about that trade leaking that day. It doesn't make me think that it's impossible if Dom Smith does get traded still, you know? Like, it seems like there was a lot of smoke around that trade for players on who seems like both teams would like to get rid of, between both Paddock and Hosmer and Dom Smith. Not that the Mets would like to get rid of Dom Smith, but I think they realize that he could be extraneous or redundant to the rest of this roster, which we've talked about, again, a ton this offseason. Yeah, I'm not going to go ahead and give too many details, but I, I heard from a little birdie in the tree that a lot of front offices were believing that these were intentional leaks, that the trades weren't just going to ever happen, just to try and see exactly how much they could boost the stocks of Dom on the Mets side and Eric Hosmer slash Chris Paddock on the Padres side, which, I mean, you probably saw that too with the A's. Like you said, they got Sean Mania from the A's. I'm sure they were like, maybe we could give you a Paddock and we could get Sean Mania. Like, are you interested in that? Okay, we're dropping birdies now, but I also had the birdie tell me that there were some questions around Chris Paddock's elbow, that there was a chance that he, again, could not be someone who contributed 
a lot this season. I think the Mets are very concerned. The Mets don't want a project in Chris Paddock. The Mets don't want to develop Chris Paddock for the next three years and possibly play an arbitration season for him, recovering from a second Tommy John surgery. The Mets want a guy who's going to give them 140 innings this season. And it seems like if Paddock was that guy, there could have been a chance this happened. But him not being it basically acts the whole deal. Because it was for this was the deal for Chris Paddock when you really look at it, nuts and bolts wise. Yeah, and I think another spin zone here, positive note, the Mets are looking to make moves. The Mets are yeah. not done. The Mets are trying to get better. Billy Epler in the front office is trying to find more pitching, which we will never say is a bad thing. No. You can never have too much pitching. Look at the Dodgers every year. They have 13 starting pitchers that are going to pitch, and they'll all be great. Like, oh, would hate to be the Dodgers. That would suck. Imagine having Mitch White as your eighth starting pitcher, a guy who's objectively just good. He was good last year, and he doesn't even have close to a role. God, so good. So good. But that's pretty much our trade talk here because that was was really the talk around Twitter. Let's go ahead and before we get into our season preview, let's let's talk about a little bit about sports betting. Of course, legal in New York now, legal in New Jersey. I don't know about Connecticut. Tri-state area, you can find bets. You can drop some, some wagers if you would like. And me and James have three picks each that we like that are specific to the Mets. So we're going to go through them real quick in case you guys have, you know, some extra change lying around and you want to try and make some quick money. Eh, maybe you could follow us and see how you do and see if you win something because I think these are there's definitely one bet that me and James agree on for sure 100% and then the other ones they're a little more fun yeah there's a big one that Mark and I agree on and that one is Chris Bassett over 10 and a half wins basically as long as Chris Bassett pitches this season he will win over 10 and a half games he's going to have a great time pitching in the wonderfully spacious confines of City Field he's going to be dropping curveballs left and right the Mets offense is going to score plenty of runs for him to win baseball games Chris Bassett will win over 10 and a half games. Put a lock on it. He won 12 last year in 157 innings with the A's, who I don't think offense or even necessarily like team-wise or defense. will be as good as the Mets are right now. Yeah, or defense. Like Chris Bassett's a good pitcher. Very Chris good. Bassett's going to be really good. He is going to be, like we said, our new Stroman. He's filling that exact same role. He's going to be reliant. He's going to be reliable. You're going to be able to go out there every five days and get five, six, seven innings out of this guy. And I like the way that he's looked in spring. I know the Marlins roughed him up a little bit the other day, whatever it was, but he was working on some stuff. Let me tell you, I love his curveball. His curveball's fun to watch. There's no better spring training line than working on some stuff. When someone does well in spring training, you're like, this guy's great. He figures something out. Whenever a guy does bad, he's, no, he's working on some stuff. He's just working on some stuff because he's got a new, new grip, new pitch mix. Easy. Working on some things. Working on some things. So, yes, the Chris Bassett over 10 and a half wins. We're hammering that one. Like it a lot. I'll go with my second bet here that I like, and it's going to be about our boy Francisco Lindor. Right now, he's got an over-under of 28 and a half home runs, and the exit velos he's been putting out all spring lead me to believe that as long as Francisco Lindor is healthy, this dude is going to hit 30 home runs. We've seen him do it before in the past in his career, and I think he's going to finally, well, I shouldn't say finally because it's been one season, but I think he's going to be able to actually be comfortable in New York this year, break through, hit that 30 home run threshold, and have a really monster season from him. He's looked so good this spring. He looks a lot more comfortable. He looks like he's finally, like, I don't know, just ready to be a Met. Like last year, he had that big contract over his head. I think this team, the guys around him, I think Lindor's comfortable, and he's going to have a monster year. I'm going to drop a Lindor bet on you, too. I like the 20 and a half home runs. While I do like that bet, especially seeing Lindor's exit velocities this spring, just City Field being so big scares me a little bit with home runs, especially a guy like Lindor who's never been... The quintessential power hitter, he's always been a good power hitter, but he's never been like a real home run guy. So I like Francisco Lindor over 141 and a half hits. 
this season. When Francisco Lindor was in Cleveland, he was consistently getting between 170 and 185 hits every single season, clearly blowing that 141 number out of the water. And now he's not exactly the 290-300 hitter he was then, but just hitting the ball as hard as he does and making as much contact as he does, a guy who does not strike out more than 20% of the time, he feels like a guy who's definitely going to have more than 141 hits. And even if you look at the projection systems on Fangraphs, Zips has him for 153. The Bat has him for 146. ATC for 145. Steamer for 149. These are all pretty clear away from the 141.5 number that we see here. And even last year, playing 125 games and being objectively bad for two-thirds of them, he had 104 hits. That's not very far off from where he could be if that number, if he, if he played the full season this year. And that was, again, a 230 hitter in 125 games, sold 100, 105 hits. I love this 141 number for Francisco Lindor to go over. It's important to note, too, that he's at the top of the lineup, so he's going to be up there for the most at-bats as well for the Mets all year mm-hmm. long. So I, I like that that over on the hits as well. I'm going to go a little crazy with this last one here. This one's, this one's if you're trying to have a little fun, trying to really hit it big. I've got an MVP bet for you. I know we just talked about Francisco Lindor. I'm not picking him. I'm going to go with Pete Alonso. I like his value a little bit more. Plus 3,000 to win the MVP. And in this lineup, with how many guys are going to be able to get on base, and the fact that he's going to have so much more protection around him than I feel like he has in the past, it feels like Pete's ready to pop off maybe a little bit closer to that 2019 year than we've seen the last few. I got Pete Alonso to win the MVP at plus 3,000. I love that one. Is it a lock? By no means. This is the riskiest bet of them all. Anytime you make an MVP bet, you're really betting on people's health at the end of the day sometimes. But Pete Alonso, MVP, I like it at plus 3,000. Let's have some fun. Yeah, I like that bet too. We've talked about this before. Pete Seagrew became one of the best hitters in baseball last season. His strikeout rate was less than league average. His barrel rate near the top of the league. His exit velocity is near the top of the league. If the Mets had a competent lineup last year, he would have had a clear 100 runs and 100 RBIs. Easily. And his numbers were far below that just because not, there were not that many Mets on base last year. I think this year hitting consistently behind Brandon Nimmo, Starling Marte, and Francisco Lindor is going to be a lot of opportunities for Pete Alonso to drive in those runs, which takes me to my third bet, also about Pete Alonso. And it's Pete Alonso to lead the major leagues in RBIs at plus 1,600, 16 to 1. And again, seeing Pete Alonso in that four hole makes me believe that there are going to be a lot, a lot, a lot of opportunities for him to drive guys in. If it was me, I probably would have hit Pete Alonso second or third just to get him as many at-bats this year as we possibly could. But he's going to be hitting behind three guys whose on-base percentages should be sniffing the 350 range if all things go well. And with those ducks in the pond, as hard as P. Alonso hits the ball, as well as he stayed healthy through the course of his career, I think that there's a really good chance that P. Alonso gets even up to that 110, 115 RBI range. And there's a chance that does lead the league. Which, oh man, that'd be great. If all, Let me tell you, if all these things do come true, I know we were worried about DeGrom and everything, but the Mets are going to be looking really good if Pete Alonso wins the MVP, Lindor hits 30 <laughs> home runs, Bassett wins over three. I think the Mets will, be, Mets will be looking pretty good at this point, you know, at the end of the season if this stuff all comes true. Imagine the, the spin we've turned in a half of an hour to go from those terrible Ken Shortcoats DeGrom injury to, yeah, Pete Alonso MVP. Seven Line fans, welcome to the Mets the Podcast. That's what we do. We start off negative. It's a roller coaster. We are all over the place. You'll see it throughout the season. And I, I I'm so excited to be able to talk about the season stuff too coming up here as we have series and stuff. But man, it's exciting. We get ups and downs. You guys have been Mets fans forever. You know the ups and downs of being a Mets fan. And it it doesn't feel like it's really going to stop anytime soon. No, this might be one of our most chaotic seasons yet. And again, happy that we're actually going to have a season. We are previewing a baseball season right now. Fucking beautiful. Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about it. So of course... The Mets team, lots of additions this offseason. You know the names. Starling Marte, Mark Canna, Max Scherzer. Uh, I'm missing a couple other ones here. Chris Bassett, I forgot his name real quick as we were talking about it. Those are the big names. Those are the headliners right there. And that is a really good place to start because I do think that this Mets team is better than the team that we saw prior years. Like, 
Top to bottom, this lineup's stronger. The rotation's stronger. The bullpen's stronger. On paper, they're in a really good place to compete right now. And I don't think Met fans don't believe that. I think the DeGrom injury news makes people a little more scared. But still, this team is one of the best teams in the National League, even if DeGrom's hurt. They're not the top of the top. They're still up there in that conversation. No, definitely. But I do think the meat of this Mets season, where the real competition is going to be, is within this National League East. I think the Braves are a very good team. I think the Phillies are a pretty good team. I think the Marlins are not a bad team. I think the Nationals have one so, though. So just based on that, <laughs> you're going to be playing tough games against all four other teams in your division. And that is going to be the real test for this Mets, especially how many games they have against the Phillies early in the season. I think they play the Phillies six times in April, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken there. That's going to be Wonderful. monumentally Thanks. important to how this season winds up, whether the Mets go 5-1, and 4-2, and 3-3, 2-4, and 1-5 and in those six early games against the Phillies. Yeah, no, it's, that's, that, I didn't even think about that. That's a good point. We also do start off against the Nationals, and we get the Diamondbacks sprinkled in there. So there's definitely a little bit of easier games sprinkled inside of all of this where we can make up some ground if there was any issues. But like you said, it feels like we say this every year. We have to beat the teams in the division. And that's something I feel like the Mets have struggled with at times. We haven't been able to get over the hump of the Braves. We've struggled at times with the Phillies. Even the Marlins have been annoying in the past. Or the Nationals, if the Mets want to win this National League East and be one of those premier teams, you have to beat up on your division. And it's going to be tougher. Every team in this division outside the Nationals got better on paper. The Phillies are better offensively. Pitching-wise, Still a little bit of a question mark, but they are better offensively. They're going to be some slogs where they score 15 runs against us and we just get absolutely housed. But we also know it's going to be the opposite where they can't get a single out because their bullpen's horrible and they can't make a play in the field. It'll be even back and forth. The Braves adding Matt Olson, Kenley Jansen, Colin McHugh, like that team got better, which is crazy to say when you lose Freddie Freeman. And the Marlins, the Marlins are the team that scares me a little bit in this division. That is going to be a little quiet because they improved massively and they have a great young pitching staff. And they even made some moves the other day to make some trades for some bullpen arms from the Orioles, guys that we both liked and Tanner Scott and Cole Sulcer. So this is a team that is going to be competitive. They're not going to be the lay down, walk all over the Marlins that we've seen in the past. They're going to be competing for like this middle of the pack here in the National League East. And they're a few moves away from being kind of scary. I'm not going to lie. Can I tell you something incredible about the Mets schedule right now? Yeah, hit me. I want you to guess what day we play our first game against the Marlins. Okay, I actually think I know this. I'm, I think I'm, I got a little inside information from our, our boy Ernesto subtape, the biggest Jonathan VR fan in all of baseball. Mm-hmm. I think it's like June, right? It is. The Mets don't play the Marlins until June 17th. By the time the Mets play the Marlins for the first time, a Friday at four, a 4 o'clock Friday game at City Field. We should go to that. That's going to be awesome. Friday, June 17th. That will be electric. But they will have already played the Phillies 13 times this season by the time we play the Marlins once. Who's making these schedules? The Mets play the Phillies 13 times before May is over. We're going to know almost everything we need to know about the Mets standing in the National League East by the time June 1st rolls around. We've played the Phillies 13 times already. Well, you play a team 18, 19 times this season, right? Like I think 18, yeah. That's crazy. We're going to play them that much. Yeah, I mean... The Marlins are not going to be a pushover. They're going to be good. That rotation is loaded, and they they added bats. Avisel Garcia, Jorge Soler. So, like, while I do think the Mets are one of the top two teams in this division still, I think even with the DeGrom injury, I still think they're better than the Phillies and the Marlins, and by a pretty good margin, but it makes them closer. Got to beat the Braves. The Braves, are, the Braves are the World Series champions for a reason, and I don't feel like they're going to be a hangover team. Got an old-school manager in Brian Snicker. He's not letting that happen, and Acuna is going to come back at some point, too. Like, they won the World Series without Ronald Acuna. That's, that's messed up. 
You're not catching my vibe. I continue to bring this conversation back to the Phillies because I think without Jacob DeGrom, the Mets and the Phillies, there's basically a razor's edge in between them. If not, the Phillies have a bit of an advantage with the way their starting pitching could line up with the season starting, Zach Willard being healthy. It is going to be an absolute dogfight playing against this team and that starting rotation and that freaking lineup 13 times before June 1st. And I am not, I'm not scared about it, but I'm very much looking forward to how we stack up against them and how how those games are played, because these are very different baseball teams, the Mets and the Phillies. They play in very different ballparks. They have very different team construction strategies here. But the big it, the big defining factor is going to start the year with these two teams, the fact that they have Zach Wheeler healthy right now. They have Aaron Nola healthy right now. Ranger Suarez is a guy who I think he's probably really good. He might take a step back. He might take a step forward. Kyle Gibson's going to eat a ton of innings. He's going to probably pitch much better into the field than he ever will this year at Citizens Bank Park. But there, there's a lot going for that team early. And they're, they're a kind of team with that lineup and two horses where if they do hit the ground running, you, I'm a little bit worried about them getting hot. They they just they have so many things that can be hot. They're going again. You're right. They're going to blow a game because Didier Gregory is going to clank a ball off his wrist in the seventh inning, let four run score off a off a uh, Yuri's familiar hard sharp ground ball. Brad Hand is going to blow games. He's a bad reliever. We know that. If he is actually going to be trusted in that bullpen, it's a mistake. And I hope they trust him because he sucks. Again, we're going to learn so much about this division when we play these Phillies thirteen times before June first. So much. You know me. I will always always undervalue the Phillies. They're a fourth place team. I'm never going to give them the respect that they deserve. They've been complete ass for the last 10 years. Congrats. You got Castellanos and Schwarber. Those are good hitters. Hitting's never been your problem in Philadelphia. That's never been the issue until I can see them be a competent team on the pitching side. I know you said Wheeler, Nola, those guys are good. There's no doubt the starting rotation actually isn't like like it's been in the past, (laughs) but the bullpen is a mess. It's an absolute mess. And we know as much as anybody Bullpens are super important. We know that that could just derail a season. Not to mention, one thing goes wrong for the Phillies. One thing. They're fucked. They have no idea what to do. Yeah, true. And that one thing would be either Wheeler or Nola, something happening to them, as we're dealing with now as the Mets fans. But that their Phillies bullpen, I wouldn't say it's good, but it's not really awful right now. This is the best Phillies bullpen that any of us have seen in, what, five years easily? Like, Corey Knable is good, but he's erratic. Jose Alvarado, he's a rat scum, but he's good, also erratic. I'm never going to disrespect Jerry's Familia. He's a fine reliever. And then Connor Brogdon is kind of good. Same with Sean Coonrod, who might open the year in the minor leagues. And Bailey Faltar, I also think, is tolerable. Where Our bullpen's better than them by, by spades. Five, six levels better than their bullpen. But this Phillies bullpen is not... It's an improvement from disaster, which has been consistently for the last five years. And that's a massive improvement, not being a disaster. I guess. I guess. <laughs> uh, just... I, I, you know me. I just can't give the Phillies any sort of credit. I will no, always sure. be way lower than I should be on them. Yeah, and I have to overcompensate and actually respect the Phillies. I also forgot about Zach Eflin. He's going to come back after his like third <laughs> degenerative knee issue, who might even be good when he does pitch, but if he does pitch. But there's just there's, there's things happening in this Philadelphia Phillies team that really make me uneasy about the way the season could start. You know what, though? There's things happening with the Mets. I know the Grom injury. I know. That's the big dark cloud looming over everything. But I really am so hopeful about this offense Marte's looking great. Marte's looked mm-hmm. awesome this spring in the games that he's played. That dude is still in incredible shape. He's playing the outfield really well. It doesn't seem like there's going to be any leash on him whatsoever. It seems like he's just ready to play, and he's going to be ready to go for opening day, which is great. I love the addition of Canna. Again, oatmeal, but he's looking pretty good. And he played a little center field today, which I thought was interesting as well, that they went mm-hmm. Canna in center and not Marte after the injury stuff. So that's that's worth noting. Uh, Pete's still great. Lindor's looking great. Don't even get me started on my boy Esco Bombs, as you've given him the nickname. I love Eduardo Escobar. He's an extra base hit machine. I love the way he plays. He's apparently a great locker room guy as well. 
I'm so excited to see that guy play every day at third base, which is a sentence that just made your skin crawl. I know it. It didn't make my skin crawl. I just he's, he's a fine player. I'm not like, I'm not getting out of bed to watch Eduardo Escobar play baseball, but he, I have dubbed him Escobar, so he's going to be my guy now. It's crazy we've gotten 40 minutes into this. We haven't even mentioned Brandon Nimmo having a stiff neck, which that's usually the beginning of the end for Brandon Nimmo. I'm going to take I'm gonna take the high road, be, road the positivity here. I'm going to assume he's going to be okay. And they put Canna on center field in today's game, Monday's game against the Astros just to keep Starling Marte consistently getting those right field reps, as position he has not played before, to kind of get a sense of the way the ball comes off the bat, the way the ball cuts toward the line, the way he's going to have to play against the wall. It's different for Starling Marte. And Brandon Nimmo will be okay. But that outfield is an interesting thing going on in spring training right now. I think something that a lot of Mets fans are almost a little perturbed by the fact that Stalling Marte was brought here to objectively maybe be a center fielder and now suddenly is not. I thought he was going to be our center fielder. He's gold glove caliber in the past. But Buck Joe Walter has said the reason why Stalling Marte is in right field doesn't actually have anything to do with his health or anything like that. He wants a strong arm in right field. And Marte 100% has the best arm of all three of those Mm -hmm. guys. So is that the right way to think about things? I don't know. I don't know if arm should outweigh range in terms of, you know, center field. But Nimmo has looked good out there. But, of course, that stiff neck thing is an issue. I mean, can we get this guy, like, a my pillow or something? Does he need a Tempur-Pedic? Like, he has more stiff necks and stiff backs than anybody I've ever seen. Is he laying on the floor when he goes to bed? What is the quality of mattress and pillow that Brendan Nimmo has? And can we get the crackhead that is the my pillow owner to maybe just sponsor the Mets and start handing out pillows to everybody? Because we fixed Dom Smith's sleeping problems a few years ago. That's need to change his game. Maybe Brandon Nimmo just needs a good pillow at night, and the stiff necks will be a thing of the past. I was really looking for the sentence today from Buck Showalter. Anyone around the Mets would be like, if this was a regular season game, he'd be playing. The fact that no one said that made me upset. So when there's a spring training injury, you have to say, if this was a regular season game, he'd be out there. If this was a game that mattered, he'd be out there. No one said that. I don't know why no one said that. I really want to hear that. It was upsetting. Yeah. No, I think Buck said he's missing today and tomorrow, and yeah. we'll we'll see. We hope he's ready for opening day to which you go. You hope? It's a stiff neck. What the fuck happened? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's sleeping on a wood board. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, like, again, Brandon Mo, He's. I think he's going to end up being fine at the end of the day. This this team offensively looks good. And I also want to give a shout-out to our boy Nito, who behind the plate yeah. has been swinging the bat really, really mm-hmm. well, and I think is going to be the getting the majority of catching time right now. I, I think he's kind of won it over McCann, at least. I think he may have won it over McCann, besides for the dollars and cents associated with both of their, each of their names. Uh, McCann, in classic fashion today, bases loaded, second inning, hit the ground ball double play. It really made me feel like the season was starting again. I felt alive watching James. <laughs> I got instinctively mad, even though it was a spring training game. I was like, shit! <laughs> but I was like, oh, it doesn't matter, whatever. But he did get a base hit after that. It's just, I don't know. Those guys should, at worst, be in a 50-50 partnership at this point, right? Like, Tomas Nido yeah, has done enough to, him. to make me think, between his defense and just some kind of offensive potential sometimes here and there, to make me think that he should be getting enough of these catcher reps to not want to pull my hair out for James McCann coming to the plate. Yeah, I will say, like, I've, I've been saying this since last year, too. Like, against lefties, I think McCann should play. He hits well against lefties. He had, like, a 750, 760 OPS last year against left-handed pitching. Granted, we are paying him $10 million a year to only face left-handed pitching, which is a very rare occurrence at times. But you have to use the guys to the best of your ability. And Nito defensively right now is by far the better catcher and gives us way more value behind the plate. I mean, we saw him stealing strikes even in spring training. I know it's spring training for the umpires, but there was a curveball to, from Chris Bass to Jorge Soler that basically touched the ground and it was called for a strike. That's Tomas Nito right there. The dude's a fantastic framer. And I think right now, 
especially when you get the DH into the lineup, so it makes your lineup a little bit longer. Tomas Nito can almost take in that de facto pitcher hitting role, and he's going to be better than any pitchers ever hit for the Mets anyway. So, like, I, I take the defense over James McCann there. Yeah, I do too. But I'm not. I, I don't want to fully write James McCann off because he did show a little bit of life last year. If he just can freaking lift the ball once in a while, you just have to get the ball in the air. And Tomas Nito again, he also has to get the ball in the air. But what he gives you defensively is important. I also think you're going to see probably some of these more veteran pitchers with more diverse repertoires possibly gravitate towards Nito, as we've seen guys do in the last few years. You mentioned Chris Bassett, that big loopy curveball, the color of the changeup, the sinker. Like He's a guy who's going to be edging around the strike zone a lot. I would like to see a more adept framer for him. Not that we know anything about real framing anyway. Every single place gives us different stats, different readings, but I just do feel like my eye test as the not expert that I am. Tomas Nino does seem to steal more strikes. I could definitely see Max Scherzer also gravitating towards him, even though Scherzer's a consummate pro. He's going he's gonna to pitch to whoever's back there. He doesn't really care. But that's that's kind of where we're at with this catcher platoon right now, and I do think that we are looking at a, bit, a 50-50 share. Which I think at the absolute minimum, that should be where it starts the year. And let the guys play it out. It, it, the spring training battle doesn't have to end when the regular season starts. See who plays better, and then you play the hot hand. That's how it really should be at the catcher position. And then we've also seen James McCann perform far better in his career when he's had less of a role. So maybe last year playing 120 games just a few too many for him. Maybe you should be sticking into that 90 to 100 range like most part-time catchers in this league are. There's very few catchers that play as many games as James McCann did yeah. last year. Like, There's no reason to compound the $10 million contract as a problem by making him play more games than he should. Like we, That was a mistake, sure. Get past it. Just play him for 90 games. Let it all be okay. You want to talk about compounding a contract? How about a little Robinson Cano action here? I mean, hey, guy, he's seven for his last seven to close the spring. What do you want from him? Uh, I would love for him to hit the ball hard once. I'd love for him to hit the ball hard once. He has not hit a ball over 100 miles an hour, I think, this spring. Of the last seven hits that he has, none of them over 100 miles an hour. I don't think he's even hit a ball over 300 feet this spring. That is concerning to me. I know everyone's like, well, seven for seven, it's seven hits. What are you going to do? Like, you'll take that all day. Yeah, but the idea is that this isn't going to last. They'll just shift him. They'll find the new spots to play their guys. If Robinson Cano cannot hit a ball over an outfielder's head, singles all day he cannot hit a double if you play the guys on a warning track and it drops in front of him even if it's a bloop someone will get there quicker than Robinson Cano to get can get to second base I'm just I'm so negative on Robinson Cano I hate to be that guy it's one of the few things I'm going to be negative about all year but man seeing him play gives me just uh gives me anger I do get what you're saying but it does seem like he has the inside track on the left-handed hitting DH role I have, but seemingly ahead of Dom Smith right now depending on how Brendan Immo's neck shakes out before opening day. But we're going to have to deal with this Robinson Cano thing for at least a month. He's either going to hit his way into a job or he's just not. And he's going to just be wasting away in the bench as a left-handed as a left-handed pinch hitter and platooner. I would love for him to prove me wrong. Let me put that first and foremost. I would love to come back to, you know, the first the season preview, the first episode with the seven line, and everyone goes, remember when that idiot Mark said Robinson Cano had nothing left in the tank? And we see by the end of April, he's got four or five home runs hitting 320. I go, hey, I was wrong congratulations. I'll take that chance that risk every single time. I would love to be wrong, but ah, Keith, Keith is like salivating over Robinson Cano. He thinks he's like right back to his prime where it's like, you just dive a little deeper into the numbers. And it's like, he's playing well. He's not actually hitting well. I mean, hey, Cano's got the back control. He's got the smooth lefty stroke. He's hitting the ball hard right in the nose. That's what, what do you want from the guy? I, I, I love Keith. I love Keith. But to hear him say he's got the same quick hands that he's always had, I go, that's just not physically possible. That's not <laughs> That's not true. No, you're right about that. And also, in this DH mix, we still have J.D. Davis, who inconspicuously has not even been spoken about a lick this entire spring training from people in Mets world and people outside of it. He seems to be the guy kind of 
getting squeezed out here when he seems to me the guy who will always play when is a left-handed pitcher on the mound, but seemingly at no other times. Yeah, he is a, the DH against lefties because unfortunately for JD's sake, cannot play the field. The only time he should ever be touching infield dirt is when he's running the bases because boy, oh boy, is it a mess at third base. Not very good over there. The throws, it's a mental thing. Half of the problem seems to be mental. He does that double clutch and then he spikes it or overthrows it. Like, it's tough. This is a guy who doesn't know what position he's been playing the last, I don't know, probably 10 years of his baseball career. <laughs> he pitched in college. Like, this guy, they've been trying to figure out a way to get J.D. Davis into a lineup any way possible because he has the talent and the ability that is worth it. It's just trying to figure out where, and it just feels like right now, like you said, against left-handed pitching, he's that DH option. Yeah, it does kind of feel like that. But it's, a, it's almost like the peak of his role. Now we have two just simple DHs on the roster, which is the exact opposite place that I've warned that the Mets should be heading into the season. Now we have two guys on the bench who would give us literally no defensive value whatsoever between J.D. Davis or Robinson Cano. And if neither of those guys have a WRC plus that sniffs like 120, 125, 130, it's just, it's just going to be a bad use of roster spots, which is really upsetting that we've gotten through this entire offseason and that it has not been addressed. Yeah, no, that's definitely one of the issues. Uh, uh, Gior May is basically our, our backup. That's not a DH. <laughs> yes, literally. And uh, yeah, basically the only one. And Jankowski. Jankowski's going to make this team. He's going to be the center fielder on the bench. Yeah, which she's a fun little player on the bench. She brings it's speed, fun. something yeah. we need. And defense. Need that defense. And then in terms of hitting, I think the only other guy we really have left to talk about is, is Jeff McNeil. We've pretty much covered some way or another every single player on this roster. Jeff McNeil is the last one. He's looking good this spring, and I also think it's worth noting that he's not screaming fuck or throwing his helmet or snapping bats over his knee after every single out, so maybe he's talked to uh, an anger management counselor, whatever it is. I like the new Jeff McNeil that we're seeing. I still want a little bit of red ass from him in the season. I still want that intensity, but as Keith said on the broadcast the other day, you got to know you're not hitting a 1,000. It's never been done before, and you are not going to do it, and it seems like he's at least a little more calm. Definitely, but you have seen the eyes when he's going down the first, base, first baseline. He had a line drive, I think, on Saturday or Sunday. Someone called it in center field, and he just like grabbed the helmet. He was like, didn't do it. He thought it, but he did not do it. Maybe that's just the difference between spring training and the regular season. But it is important to note that the Mets are continuing to hit Jeff McNeil high in the order in spring training when he does play. You've seen him hit one and two pretty consistently as opposed to six. He also got his first outfield rep of spring training over the weekend too, which we've been talking about the fact that he does have to be a backup outfielder, again, because of the way this roster is constructed right now. And I am happy to see that he... It, he he's capable of doing that, and the team is comfortable with him doing it because he he's always been a good outfielder when he's been out there. And the fact that they're continuing to hit him high in the order means the team internally still has a lot of confidence in Jeff McNeil, and there's almost no reason that we shouldn't as well. Yeah, in a world where Nimmo misses a first first few games or whatever, McNeil 100% should be starting in the outfield over Dom. Dom, Dom defensively is a mess. We know that. The bat's looking better, but defensively, you got to go with McNeil in the outfield for sure. Yeah, very much does, unless they want to play Jankowski. And that depends, honestly, how comfortable they are with either Canna or Marte in center. Because if they aren't comfortable with those guys in center, Jankowski is going to be the center fielder. But it would be really interesting if Nimmo is missing time and the Mets continue to play Starling Marte in right field. That would almost make me think that something is, something's amiss. I really just think it's Buck talking about the arm. I really <laughs> like, kind of like the McNeil thing. Like, we love McNeil, but we also know that in this Mets lineup at its healthiest, he shouldn't be hitting in the, in the first three batters. There's just no way no. there are better players. So, this could just be a little bit of Buck old school thing. Like, need, need a good arm in right field, and he's our best one. He's playing there. I guess you're right about that. I mean, this is all, this is all nonsense until we actually know if Brandon was going to be in the lineup on opening day, but. This is just all these kind of fun little things that us Mets fans have to keep track of before we get going here, whether it be Thursday or Friday, depending on the rain in Washington. Yeah, can we please? I would love a clean opening day. I don't want to rain. I don't want a rained out opening day start on Friday. Like the the vibes on Thursday should be exciting, should be plentiful. I don't want rain. Nationals had back to back home openers rained out. 
fucking Washington Nationals, man. Hate that team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't have any emotion towards that team at all. Honestly, I, think, I feel nothing for them. I guess the, the Nationals that we hated are no longer there. No, almost none of them. But, I mean, hey, I'm pretty excited about getting the season going. There's a lot. We talked about almost every single guy on this roster, guys who are not in this roster, guys who used to be on this roster, and guys who might have been in this roster in this episode. There's a lot going on here, and I'm pretty excited. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super excited. And I think the Mets' outlook, you know, with some bad news coming here and there, I still think it is very positive. I still think this is a very good team, as do you. And I think the Mets, as long as things go right, could be in a really, really good spot when all things come to an end at the end of the season. All right, and we tweeted out earlier that we're going to answer some viewer questions as well as last episode. I did promise that anyone dropped us a review would give them a shout out. So here we go. Here's some reviews. Uh, one of them is just a bunch of letters, H, Y's, and U's. You know who you are, whoever made that. <laughs> uh, we got air, a, a plane sim, not airplane sim, a plane sim. So thank you for the five-star review. And Big Train Dude, thank you guys for the reviews. Appreciate it. There's your letter shout outs. Now, as for Twitter, again, we asked for some questions, comments, concerns. going to scour through, pick some of the best ones, and... Give you guys a shout out there from Twitter as well, at Messed Up. All right, first question comes from our friend Nick Kowal, the Koala 4, very loyal listener to the Messed Up podcast. He says, is there any credible reason why the Mets wouldn't just cut Cano and eat his salary instead of starting him over Dom and JD? And the answer is because that is a really big salary. That's just, that's basically it. I don't know, I know Steve Cohen has billions and billions of dollars, but I think if he would have cut Cano, it probably already would have happened, or he's just going to wait for him to play like absolute dog shit. Not saying that cutting him's off the table, but there's no way it happens before opening day. After coming off a seven for seven, for seven stretch. You have to at least see what Robinson Cano gives you. And if it's anything, you take it. If it's nothing, that's when you get the, the consideration of possibly cutting him. But it's not going to happen probably before like June 1st. I, I can't see that happening. Almost definitely not. Unless he's really, really atrocious in April. Which is possible. But it's, also, it's just so yeah. much money. The fact that he's owed basically $40 million over the next two seasons. It's really hard to stomach cutting that. Especially because it's still going to count against your tax line. You might as well just leave him. Got a fun one here. This one comes from I love my uncle Steve at Schroeder Greg underscore rookie of the year pick for the Mets. I like this one a lot. Which rookie player do we think could have the biggest impact for the New York Mets between Khalil Lee, Brett Beatty, Mark Vientos, or maybe someone else? I like that question. I think biggest impact wise for the Mets this season, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with Brett Beatty. I think Brett Beatty gets called up maybe mid season ish around that June July ish area. And I think he's going to be able to give us a little something with the bat left-handed wise, play a little third base, maybe even a little outfield. You never know. Uh, I, I like Brett Beatty a lot to be our pick. My pick, I should say. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spin that around and say Mark Vientos. I think that if there's a if there's a corner infield injury for the Mets, I think you're going to see Mark Vientos come up really quickly because he has already dominated double-A and hit very well in triple-A in a short sample. He clearly has a major league bat. He does not have a major league glove, but he'll probably never have a major league glove. So if we're scuttling on offense in any way, and we've gotten a big injury, maybe DH has opened up, maybe something happened with second base or third base, and when third base has opened up, if there's there's a lot of ways for I think Mark Fiento's to impact this team. And I also just I will shout out clearly, he's the most obvious choice for a rookie who will impact this team. I just I just am worried about his swing and how it adjusts to major league pitching. We saw how bad he was last year. Not that that's the guy he is or will be, but the talent chasm between AAA and the major leagues is as wide as it's ever been, mostly due to velo- difference in velocity. And Khalil Lee's big left-handed swing seems like it'd be one that struggle will struggle with velocity, and it did struggle with velocity last year. So while there's a lot of things he can do to help a baseball team, like hit home runs and make really nice plays in the outfield, I would like to see him... I'm, I don't know anything about swings, but maybe a swing adjustment would actually help him impact major league baseball team more so. 
He's got the Franchi Cordero thing going on. Hits the ball yeah. really hard, throws it really hard, runs really fast. Tons of walks. Doesn't hit the ball too often. Yeah, tons of walks. Like You love all the peripheral stuff of him, but the actual performance at the major league level, there's definitely some tweaks that need to be made. And I also want to talk about, I mean, shout out to Jack Bennett because he asked us about Khalil Lee. So let's give him a shout out too. Mm-hmm. And I think the final one that we'll talk about here is going to come from Johnny B signed up for this. Has to do with Francisco Alvarez's impact on this team. We saw him play a little bit this spring. He's looked pretty good. Even behind the plate, he's looked pretty solid. I think better than a lot of people expected. I don't know if it's realistic to expect Francisco Alvarez to make an impact on this team, but I will say this. I think he could. I very much think he could make an impact on this team. I think it's a real possibility. Yeah, definitely. We broke it down a few episodes ago, but the Zips projection system on Fangraphs, which is their most used projection system when projecting still minor league players, it says that this year Francisco Alvarez would be a, a major league average hitter. His WRC Plus would basically be right at 100, which signifies you're an average player in Major League Baseball. And I think that, again, if there's a major injury to one of these catchers, there, there's a chance. He also, Francisco Alvarez has to dominate Double A. If he's just getting by in Double A, probably not going to see him until midway through next year. But if Francisco Alvarez has put up eight home runs in his first 25 games for the Rumble Ponies, there is a chance that you start, and again, James McCann is stinking at the plate still. You're going to start hearing the rumblings. There is a chance that he gets. He gets to make his major league debut this year. Yeah, no, I, I think the injury is probably the quickest way for him to get there, but we know the bat plays. The bat's going to play anywhere. The bat sounds different. He's part of that group of guys who just hit the ball a little bit different. I would love to see Francisco Alvarez make an impact. Will he this year? Probably unlikely, but I think those were our questions over on Twitter. All the other ones that people asked, we, we kind of already got to them through this episode, so apologies that we didn't get to choose yours, but your question got answered one way or another. But I think that's a perfect way for us to wrap up here. Episode number 81 of the Mets Up Podcast. The first partnered up, presented by The Seven Line. Huge shout out to them. Super excited to do a lot of stuff in the future with them. Go to games, interact with you guys. We are also, you know, on Twitter, super active. So if you don't follow us on Twitter, at Mets Up, Instagram at Mets Up, we tweet out asking you guys for questions, comments, concerns, replying. We're always interacting with the fans, so make sure you're following us, as well as following us on our personal Twitters. I'm at Giraffe Mark, and James is at Jeter Had No Range. Uh, listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find us. Drop us a rating, drop us a review, as well as subscribe to our YouTube channel, Mets Up, uh, Mets Up Podcast over there on YouTube. All the new viewers, all the old viewers, hopefully you guys love what you saw today. And again, I know I've mentioned it a few times, but this is our first episode partnered up with the Seven Line. Huge shout out to Darren over there for giving us a chance, partnering up with us. We're super excited to reach a whole new group of Mets fans, a whole new audience. So make sure you guys do stick around if you like what you see. If you see us at Met Games, you see us at Seven Line, you know, parties, see us at tailgates, make sure you say what's up. We're going to be doing a ton of content with them all year long as one of the Mets podcasts in their network of podcasts, which is going to be great. And uh, hopefully you guys like what you saw here. So if you do, follow us on Twitter, Instagram. I gave you that spiel already, but I'm going to say it again, at MetsUp. And I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up, right, James? Oh, yeah. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode when we actually have baseball to talk about, the Washington Nationals series at the end of it. See you next time, guys. Peace out. Peace out, guys. Thanks for listening.